So of all the books of the Bible, Jonah probably has the most unexplainable and unexpected and overlooked final chapter. Out of all the books in the Bible, Jonah uh, has a hidden gem for us at the end of the story. I was driving in my truck with my kids uh, a little while back, and uh, my son pointed to my CD player slot, and he goes, Dad, what's that for? I said, they're, they're for CDs. And he's like, what's a CD? And I, I said, well, there are these like little, you know, circle discs that they used to put music on. And, you know, you still see them around everyone's. Some of you still have them in your car. I know you do. Uh, I said, yeah, you play music on this. But how many of you remember, uh, how many of you remember buying CDs uh, and there would be sometimes a hidden uh, or a bonus song at the end of the track? That's not on the on the titles. And so you'd be you'd end your final song and then suddenly another song would start playing. Oh, a bonus track. Well, you know what? The story of Jonah, this chapter in Jonah is almost like a bonus track for some people because many people stop after what we've already discussed. And if you're joining us, uh, let me recap the book of Jonah so far. Jonah uh, hears the word of the Lord, tells him to go to Nineveh and to call out against the evil happening in Nineveh. But he disobeys and he boards the ship for Tarshish. He flees in the opposite direction and the Lord hurls a storm at the sea, at the ship. And the ship is caught in a great storm and the sailors begin to cry out to their God. They wake Jonah up who's sleeping in the boat and they tell Jonah, who do you serve? They ask Jonah, who do you serve? Who are you? He says, I'm the God who made the sea and the dry land. They say, what should we do? And Jonah, great idea, says, cast me over, just kill me because I'd rather die than repent and turn back to the Lord. Just throw me over the boat. And they said, okay, they throw him over the boat, and the sea calms down, and they, the sailors make vows to the Lord. They give their lives to the Lord in this moment. And as Jonah is sinking down into the depths of the sea, the Lord causes a great fish to swallow Jonah. And he spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And he cries out to God this beautiful prayer of repentance. It's a prayer that's probably paralleled only to, to one of David's psalms. But it's this honest prayer of repentance where Jonah turns back to the Lord and the Lord has mercy on Jonah and he has the fish spit Jonah back out on the dry land. And Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to him a second time and tells him to go to Nineveh and to proclaim the message that God has given to Jonah to Nineveh once again. So he gets up, he goes to Nineveh and he begrudgingly marches into the city and delivers a five word sermon. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's all he says. 40 days and then it will be overturned. Doesn't explain who sent him. Doesn't describe how they can get out of the calamity that he's prophesying over them. He says 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned and the whole city repents and turns to God, including the king. And even this, this book is meant to be uh, satirical and uh, ironic and kind of humorous because it says that even the cows repented. That even the animals put on sackcloth, even the animals fasted. And so the animals are willing to repent, but Jonah is not, right? The pagan sailors are willing to repent, but God's chosen prophet is not. A city of evil turns to God, but Jonah still is not turning to God. And so uh, the city repents, and this is oftentimes where people end the story. Hooray! Jonah survives the fish. The whole city gets saved. What a great ending to the story. But if you continue listening to the CD, there's a bonus track, chapter 4. And this is where we learn the true lessons in the book of Jonah, the hard lessons, the ones that are difficult to hear. 
Jonah has one of the greatest successes of any of God's prophets. He should be thrilled with the outcome of his mission. But how does Jonah respond to Nineveh's repentance and to God's mercy over the city? This is what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to do what I did last week, read a little bit, and then comment on it. Verse 1 says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. What a drama queen. Jonah is having a temper tantrum. He is a toddler prophet. He is... I don't like what you're doing. Just kill me now. I'd rather die. I want to be part of a different family. Drop me off at my friend's house. I never want to see you again, Dad. These are words I've never heard from my kids. He's having a temper tantrum. And did you notice that Jonah isn't just upset at God, but the text says that he actually believes that God is wrong for showing mercy. He says, that it seemed very wrong to him. Why would Jonah believe that? Come on, every single one of us should be asking the question, what is wrong, Jonah? God spares you from a fish. You've seen the great, one of the greatest revivals in history on your five-word sermon that you just preached. Come on, you should be jumping for joy right now. What is going on? What is wrong, Jonah? And finally, here in chapter 4, it's revealed to us why Jonah fled from God's word in the first place. And it wasn't because he was afraid of the Ninevites. It wasn't because he felt unprepared or the journey would be long or it would be difficult. No, we see in verse 2 that Jonah suspected all along that God would show mercy to his enemies. And he fled because he didn't want to participate in Nineveh turning towards God. Perhaps we can assume that Jonah might be angry because he feels like God is just wasting his time by telling him to preach a message that isn't going to take place anyway. Come on, God, what you got me doing walking around this city proclaiming a message? I know you're compassionate. I know you're probably not going to do this anyway. Are you trying to make me look like a fool for going around this city telling people this place is going to be destroyed when it's actually not? Are you wasting my time? Jonah's upset. He's angry. And you have to understand where Jonah is coming from. See, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria is a terrible enemy of Israel. In fact, 20 to 50 years after Jonah's mission, Assyria captured Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, which left Judah in the southern kingdom to fend for itself. And eventually Jerusalem in the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians in 597 B.C., So Israel and Assyria are terrible enemies with one another. Israel is God's chosen people. And Jonah seems to think that to show compassion to Israel's enemies is to weaken the strength of Israel. It's to weaken the strength of God's people. Jonah in his mind is thinking, how can you make Israel great while at the same time support the people who are trying to conquer us? 
This doesn't make sense, God. This is wrong. If we are your chosen people, if you truly love us, then you are going to bring the hammer down on the Assyrians. You are going to, to, to pour out your wrath on our enemies. If, if Israel is to be great and you can't be nice to our enemies, you got to help us. You got to defend us. You got to come to our aid. And Jonah, he, it's like he's saying to God, these people don't deserve your mercy. They don't, they don't deserve it because they're evil. They only changed because they were scared. They didn't convert. They didn't start worshiping you. They merely promised to start changing. And you bestow mercy on them? God, you've gone too far. This is wrong. I'm not just angry. I think you're wrong. I think if we're honest with ourselves, church, there's people in our lives that we consider Ninevites. I'm not the only one in the room. These are people we cannot imagine coming to God and experiencing his grace. We've given up on these people. And deep down, we might be saying in our hearts, they deserve what's coming. Right? They won't be laughing when they stand before God. They might be preaching to all of us on Facebook. We might see them on the news having their way, thinking they're right. But they're going to get what's coming to them and serves them right. We might be saying these things in our hearts. And church, the danger is this, is that we become, as God's people, we become callous and we become judgmental when our hearts should break for the lost. It should break for people who are far from God. We should never stop desiring to share God's love with people we know who are lost. Knowing the truth about an eternity in hell, an eternity separated from the presence of God, it should motivate us to never give up on the people who we consider to be the most far from God. And right here in verse 2, Jonah quotes the most famous description about the character of God from Exodus chapter 34. The Lord our God is, 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 is compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. It is the most famous description of God's character. And the problem with this, what Jonah does, is he doesn't finish the passage. Or he doesn't consider the story, the original story in context, but instead he abuses scripture in, attempt, in an attempt to prove to God that he's wrong. Bad idea, Jonah. This is what Exodus 33, verse 18 through 20, we're going to lead up to Exodus 34. But Exodus 33, 18 through 20, then Moses says, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Everybody say Goodness. My goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So what God tells Moses, he says, you can't see my face because it's too much for you to handle, Moses. You're going to die if you do that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to put my hand over you, and as I pass by, I will remove my hand, and you can see my back as I'm going away from you. So as he passes before Moses, this is what Moses exclaims. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But he goes on. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. 
See, Jonah stops halfway through the verse. He says, I knew you were going to do this, God. I, I knew that you show mercy to your enemies. I, I knew that you, uh, that you don't stand up for your people like you said you would. You're just gracious and compassionate. But what about your judgment on the evildoers, God? What about the hammer? Come on, God. If you're, gonna, if you're really looking out for Israel, then you're going to bring judgment on these people. It's wrong for you to just be merciful and loving and compassionate all the time. We like judgment for others sometimes, don't we? But we sure don't want it for ourselves. Right? We like to judge other people from afar. You got, God is going to take care of you. I hope he brings it down. I hope you learn your lesson. I hope God wakes you up. But when it comes to our life, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, God. I, I need help. Right? This is the, this is the, the struggle with self-righteousness. I remember one time I was leading worship at my old youth group. And I'm a young worship leader. And um, I think I was playing electric guitar, which I'm not very good at electric guitar. And, and I was kind of like nervous about it. And the drummer, you know, he, he counts us off with a four count. One, two, three, four. And the whole band starts playing. And it sounds like a train wreck. Just I mean, there's like three different keys going on and four different tempos. It was just like it sounded like a train wreck. This is what I'm hearing in my head. And I'm just like immediately upset, immediately on judgment mode. Who is ruining this worship music? Who is doing this? I'm walking around the stage. I'm literally, I'm leading worship in front of the church. And I got a scowl on my face. And I'm going, I'm walking around with my guitar in my hand to every musician going, like looking at their instrument. What are you playing? Are you doing this? Why does this sound like garbage? Is this the drummer's fault? Is this the bass player's fault? And I'm walking around stage with a scowl. And I look down and I realize I've got my capo on my guitar. I'm, I'm the one who's playing in the wrong key. It's me. It's my fault. And my countenance suddenly changed. Oh, never mind, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my bad. You know, I was so quick to pass judgment on everybody else. But when I realized it was my fault that I was the one making the mistake. Oh, don't worry about it. It wasn't a big deal. Look, I just I fixed it. Right. This is how we act. And this is what we do in self-righteousness. We 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 want judgment for other people and we expect judgment for other people. But ourselves, we want mercy. Isn't that right? In Jonah's mind, there's a theological issue happening here. There seems to be a contradiction between the justice of God and the love of God. How can God relent from judging evildoers? How can he forgive and not punish sin? How can he do both of those at the same time? You know, many people in the Western culture today, we're not troubled by God's mercy, are we? Because uh, we, uh, many people don't accept the idea of a God who judges. We want a God of love. We like a God of love. That's easier to preach, isn't it? It's easier to tell our neighbors about a God of love. But a God who does not get angry when evil destroys the creation he loves is ultimately not a loving God at all. If you love someone... You must get angry, and you will get angry if something threatens to destroy him or her. As some, as some have pointed out, you have to have a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression and injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. There's one writer 
who had seen a genocide in his homeland, and he said this, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that we should desire a God who refuses to judge. It takes living in a quiet suburban life where you don't experience any oppression or judgment. We forget about God who comes to the aid of those who are being persecuted, who rescues those who are persecuted, who judges evildoers. And we're so open to the God of love. Imagine someone broke into your home in the middle of the night and took your most valued possession, or maybe they hurt someone that you love. And you're standing in a courtroom waiting for justice to be served. And and everything is, you're reliant completely upon the judge. You're relying solely based on what the judge is going to say. Would a good judge let the criminal go unpunished? If he did, he wouldn't be a good judge, right? The justice of God is part of what makes him so good. And the mercy of God, the fact that he chooses who he's going to have mercy on. Who he's going to have compassion towards. That is also what makes him a good God. The word that best brings together the ideas of God's love and justice is what we just said. It's the word goodness. It's the word goodness. It's what he showed Moses as he passed by. He said, my goodness is going to pass before you. God is good. And Jonah didn't have the full picture of God's goodness. Moses didn't either. He only saw God's back. He didn't get to see the full picture. He didn't see where God was headed. He didn't understand what the face of God looks like. And we live on the opposite side of the cross, and we have an opportunity to better understand God's mercy and his justice because we can look at the life of Jesus. We have seen the face of Jesus. We have this person in the Bible. We can see Hebrew says that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the exact representation of the Father in heaven. That when you look at the person of Jesus, you are seeing the fullness of God in all of his love and in all of his justice and all of his goodness. Jesus is the full picture of God. And we can look at Jesus and see how God desires to love his enemies and show them compassion, even when he's hanging on a cross in the midst of his execution. Say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The compassion of Jesus, we get to see that. But we also get to see how Jesus cared for victims of injustice because of how he communicated his passion to see people cared for. To see the poor and the sick and widows and orphans cared for. To see the, the marginalized and the, the outcast be brought back in to be restored to the family. Jesus cared deeply about justice. And we have a more full picture of the goodness of God. Not that the picture is 100% clear, right? We still have questions. We still wonder uh, about the character of God, about who he is, and we're still discovering that the more and more we read scripture. But when we look at the person of Jesus, we can see a more full picture of God's love and his justice. We live in this comfortable society with little personal oppression. I think many of us can say that, that uh, we don't experience daily persecution or daily injustice or daily oppression. But Jonah lived in a very difficult time. And experienced much oppression and injustice. He was waiting on God's wrath to be poured over Nineveh. Let's continue reading. Verse 4. But the Lord replied, 
is it right for you to be angry? See, the same God who hurled a storm at the ship is the same God who we see here gently counseling Jonah in a moment of his anger. And God is reminding Jonah that he is God and he can do whatever he pleases. He's essentially saying to Jonah, hey, Jonah, take a look at the situation here. I'm really pleased with with what is happening. And you're angry. Which one of us is right? Which one of us should win this argument? Is it right for you to be angry if I'm pleased with what's happening here? We have to be reminded that despite all of our life experience and despite all of our learned knowledge, despite all of our good deeds and our perceived righteousness, we are still the creation and God is still the creator. He still knows what's best. He still is the only one who can properly assess a situation, who can properly judge a situation. He can do whatever he pleases. But here's, if I'm honest, church, and I'm, I try to always be honest when I'm up here on stage, by the way. But, but if, if, I'm, if I'm vulnerable with you this morning, when I search myself deeply, I, I learn that something about this truth, about God always being right, that he's always sovereign, that he always knows what's best, If I search myself, I learn that something about this truth bothers me. Am I really supposed to trust that God knows best at all times? Come on, don't answer like that. You're making me feel this big. What about, what about my opinion? God, what about, what about my feelings? What about what I believe? What about what have I, I've experienced things too. I've seen, I have a lens that I've seen the world through and I feel like it's pretty good. I've got a pretty, I'm, I feel pretty centered on my theology. I feel pretty centered in my politics. I feel pretty right all the time. Oh God, am I really supposed to trust? Am I really supposed to believe that you know right all the time? Am I the only one who feels this way? Wow. I thought I was preaching. I'm just preaching to myself. <laughs> here's, what, here's what these thoughts do. Come on, I know that I'm not the only one. No. <laughs> these thoughts reveal that I've created idols in my heart. They are things that I can see and touch and experience that provide more security than what the infinite God can provide. I've created an idol of my Myself, my own thoughts, my perceptions, my theology, my politics. I create an idol of what I believe is right to the point where I struggle trusting that God knows best. And let me tell you, church, for those of you who think that I'm the only one on stage, I'm the only one who's preaching, who's hearing this message, this has been humanity's struggle since the Garden of Eden, since the beginning of time. The first two people were faced with a decision To trust in what God says was best or to seize the opportunity to determine what is good for themselves. From the very beginning, God said, do not touch this tree. If you do, I don't know, does he say that? He says, don't touch the tree. 
This is not for you. He said, you can have all the tree of life that you want. He said, eat from the tree of life all you want. That's what I've come come to give you life. But don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the devil comes. And he says, did God really say that? Did God, does God really know what's best for your life? Come on, doesn't it look so attractive, Eve? That it's so pleasing to the eye. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. Eve, doesn't it look so good? God just doesn't want you to have good things in your life. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like him. The reality is Adam and Eve were already like God. They were created in the image of God, right? And the devil comes and says, do you really think that God always knows what's best for you? Come on. Be real with yourself. You know what you want, Eve. You know what looks good. You know what's attractive. Just take it. Just take a bite. And Eve, she decides in that moment, I am going to trust what I think is good. I'm going to seize an opportunity to define for myself what is right and what is wrong, what is just, who should have compassion, who should have justice. I'm going to determine it. I'm going to become the judge. And from that moment, the rest of humanity does the same thing. This is what we do in our life. And every day we're faced with this opportunity to trust in what God says is best. He's given us his word. He's given us, he's spelled out in the Bible what pleases him and what makes him happy. And we have an opportunity to say, do I really believe that? Do I really believe this? Or am I going to try to define what's right and what's wrong myself? Our culture is doing this all over our world today. We're, we're experiencing this today. That, that truth is something that you can now define. That don't, don't you preach to me about what's right and wrong because you have your truth, I have my truth, and my truth is making me happy, so I hope your truth makes you happy. Just leave me alone. And God says that's not how it works. There is a higher truth. There is an authority. And it comes from Scripture. It comes from God. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who questions us, who steps in and counsels us in our moment of self-righteousness, in our moment of trying to seize control. What did God do in the garden when they ran away? He questioned them. Where are you guys? Who told you you can eat that fruit? Who said that you were, who said that you were naked? God came and he counseled and he questioned. And God does the same thing to us. He steps into our life and he gently questions us. Let's continue reading. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter or a tent, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen in this to the city. <laughs> He's still holding on to the hope that it might burn. I'm going to sit here and wait. Maybe God will relent from relenting. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. By the way, isn't it ironic that God uses the largest of creatures to save Jonah? And he uses the smallest of creatures here to speak to him. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah could have stayed in the city. He could have stayed where he was at. The people are turning to God. This is a perfect opportunity. 
to, to provide them with a more perfect message of who God is, of his heart for people, right? These, the, the conditions are ideal to talk about Yahweh, but instead Jonah quits. He says, I'm leaving. I'm going to go outside the city. And he builds a shelter, and he waits and hopes that God is going to change his mind about saving the city. Maybe it'll still burn. But here's another picture of Jonah creating for himself a more comfortable situation. The first picture we see is when he flees to Tarshish, right? Tarshish in the Bible is this is this symbol of wealth and comfort and idolatry and pagan worship. And, and, and Jonah says, no, no, I'm not going to do the hard thing. I'm not going to do what God's calling me to do and preach to my enemies. I'm going to go to the land of wealth and comfort. I'm going to go make myself a spot, find myself a spot where I can really enjoy life. He leaves what God is calling him to do. Now, while the city is turning to God, he leaves the city and he builds a shelter and he sits in the shade instead of being a part of what God is doing. He creates another situation for himself that's more comfortable. But God is too compassionate He's too compassionate to allow Jonah to remain in his rebellious attitude. God is too just to allow Jonah to sulk in his unmerited anger. So God builds another shelter for Jonah. Jonah builds his own shelter, and God builds one for him. He causes this, this, this leafy plant to arise and provides shade for Jonah. And for the first time in the book, Jonah is happy. Finally, this grumpy prophet who is displeased with the call to Nineveh, he's displeased with the storm, he doesn't like being in the belly of fish, he doesn't like preaching, he doesn't even like when people repent, you just can't make this guy happy, but this little leaf grows up and Jonah is exceedingly rejoices. He exceedingly rejoices. He attaches himself. The Bible says this, this word that he, that, that we're going to continue reading is he, he attaches himself to this plant. He becomes so grateful, so overjoyed with this plant. He's happy for the first time. Then God in his wisdom, he removes the petty thing that makes Jonah happy. There you go. Yeah. Isn't that nice? No. Okay. We're taking it away. I don't think so. What's God doing? Here's, here's the application. When things are bad and when times are tough, I find shelter in things that give me temporary comfort. When things are hard and when I don't understand what's going on and there's trials and there's struggle, I, I, I seek a shelter. I want to build myself a shelter to find some temporary comfort from the hardships of life. And this, church, is how addictions are formed. We seek relief from facing things that hurt. We want relief from things that are difficult to overcome. So we go and we build a shelter. And likewise, when things are going well, right? And when I sit back in the shade, I put God on the back burner. When things are going really good in my life and I've got everything I need, the money's good, the relationships are good, the house is big, the car's running good. What do I need God for? Right? What do I need my devotions for? I often find myself in those seasons of, of abundance, in those seasons where everything is going good. I find myself slipping slowly away. And God becomes more and more in the background. He, I put him on the back burner. And then suddenly, 
In the moment of hiding in my shelter or reclining in my shade, forgetting about God, God wakes me up by removing those things from my life. And he reminds me that he is all I need. He removes those shelters. He removes those coping mechanisms. Says, nope, this is only going to lead you further to death. I'm taking it away because it's not good for you. I'm all you need. Hey, hey, you need to wake up because you're getting too comfortable. You're forgetting about me. You think you've got everything you need? Nope, I'm going to take that away because I need you to know that I am all you need. Do you understand that this is God's mercy in our life? That when God does this in our life, this is him reaching out saying, I love you too much to leave you where you are. I love you too much to forget about me. I love you too much to form your own coping mechanisms to get lost in this addiction. I'm going to step in and I'm going to remove that plant from your life. I'm going to rip it out because I am all that you need. Psalm 27, 5. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe from his dwelling, in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon the rock. God says, I've got a shelter for you. It's me. I'm your dwelling place. I'm your hiding place. I'm your refuge. I'm your fortress. I'm your strength. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. God says, I'm all you need. I'm the hiding place. I'm the shelter. Don't get comfortable. Don't, don't try to cope with other things. Come to me. Come to me in your hurt. Come to me. When things are bad, come to me. When things are good, come to me. Otherwise, you're going to fade away. And God in his mercy, he keeps us with our eyes focused on him. When he sees us wandering away, when he sees our hearts begin to turn away, he puts us back on track. And oftentimes we pout like Jonah. Why did you do that? I was relying on that thing. It It was bringing me relief. It was bringing me temporary happiness. And you took it away. Why'd you do that? God, everything was going so good, and suddenly things are just falling apart. Why are you doing this? I just want to die. And God says, I'm doing it because I love you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I, I know what's good for you. I know what's good for your heart. I know what's good for your spirit, that all these things are fleeting. They're, they're going to pass away, but I will remain. Your spiritual life will remain, and that's what I'm concerned about. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000. This is like within the city limits. There are other estimates believe it was more like 300,000 in the suburbs and outside the city limits. There's uh, more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and so, and also many animals. The Hebrew word used to describe Jonah's concern for the plant is chus. Get some phlegm in there again. Say it with me. All right. And it means, like I mentioned before, it means to weep over it, to be moved to compassion. And God is saying, Jonah, you wept over this plant and you did nothing to earn it. You became attached 
to this plant. You, atto- you attached your emotions. You attached your identity. You attached your security. You attached yourself to this plant. And you didn't do anything for it. Should I not become attached to people who need me? Are you right to be angry, Jonah? Should I not become attached to Nineveh? Over a century ago, there's a theologian named B.B. Warfield. He wrote a scholarly essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he considered in this essay every recorded instance in the Gospels that described the emotions of Jesus. Every instance in the Gospels that describes the emotions of Jesus. And he concluded that by far the most typical statement of Jesus' emotional life was the phrase, He was moved with compassion. The statement used more over Jesus' emotions than any other emotion was he was moved with compassion. A Greek phrase that literally means he was moved from the depths of his being. God himself was moved from the depths of his being. This is a quote from Timothy Keller. He says this, the Bible records Jesus Christ weeping 20 times for every one time it notes that he laughs. He was a man of sorrows, and not because he was naturally depressive. No, he had enormous joy in the Holy Spirit and in his Father, as according to Luke 10, 21. And yet he grieved far more than he laughed because his compassion connected him with us. Our sadness makes him sad. Our, our pain brings him pain. Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. Yet, of course, he is infinitely more than that. Jesus did not merely weep for us. He died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation. But Jesus Christ went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. See, to observe this intense emotion from God himself. Jesus is God himself. He's God in the flesh. And to observe how Jesus, how God is moved with compassion for us. It's an incredible thing because humans attach themselves to people and to things because we need those relationships in our life. We need those things in our life. We attach ourselves to people, to spouses, because, because we need those people oftentimes. We, we attach ourselves to things because they provide some sort of comfort. But God is completely autonomous. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. Instead, he chooses to attach himself to us. He chooses to connect himself with people. You need to hear this morning that God has attached himself to you. He has attached himself to you. Some of you need to hear that God doesn't just love you. He didn't die for you out of obligation because, oh, I'm the sacrificial savior. I'm supposed to do this for everybody, even though, you know, that guy over there, I don't really like him, but I guess I'm going to have to throw him into the pot. No, Jesus not only loves you, he likes you. He wants to spend time with you. You have been created in the image of God, and he said it was good. Jesus loves every little detail about you, every little what you consider to be a character flaw or a a physical flaw, whatever you don't like about yourself, Jesus loves it all about you. He likes you. He has attached himself emotionally to you. God has attached himself emotionally to you. He is moved with compassion for you. When you weep, he weeps. When you are in pain, 
He's in pain. He loves you so much. I'm going to ask Mary to come up as we start to land this plane. The end of this story, did you notice, is a, it's a cliffhanger. That's it. That's all we get. We just read through the book of Jonah, church. And it ends with God asking a question. Should I not have compassion on people? Should I not have concern for the Ninevites? The author of Jonah wants you to answer God's question. He wants you to answer it this morning. God wants Jonah to see himself, to recognize the ways that he continues to deny God's grace and the ways he holds on to self-righteousness. And he poses one final question. You don't want me to have compassion on Nineveh, but shouldn't I? In light of all that I've shown you, Jonah, how I've had mercy on you, You've been a disobedient prophet from the beginning. You ran away. And I sent a storm. I chased after you. And when you were sinking in the ocean, I sent a great fish and I saved you. And when I could have chose somebody else, I came to you a second time and I said, Jonah, I want you. And you went to the city with a bad attitude and it still worked. And the whole city repented. I've had mercy on you, Jonah. I've cared for you, Jonah. I've loved you, Jonah, through all of your flaws, through all of your sin, through all of your disobedience. I've been with you every step of the way. Now, shouldn't I show that same love to the people around you? Don't for a second think that you deserve it, Jonah. Because I'm a God that's moved with compassion. And I choose who I show love to. I choose who I show compassion to. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I'm here for all who believe. I want to show my compassion to everyone. Jonah, shouldn't you join me? Shouldn't you join me in this mission, showing compassion to people? Is it right for you to go out to the city? Is it right for you to get stuck in your own comfort, build yourself a shelter? Or should you be here with me, showing my love to people? said, the book of Jonah forces us to contemplate our personal destiny. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion. For you are Jonah. I am Jonah. I wonder sometimes how Jonah's life ended. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Did he remain an angry and rebellious prophet or did he allow God to soften his heart eventually? And I believe that we can make a reasonable guess about how Jonah ultimately responded to God. I think we can make a good guess. Because how do we know that Jonah was so defiant and rebellious in his mission? How do we know those things? How do we know that he, how do we know about his unbelievable, I hate the God of love speech? Jonah says, you're too compassionate. I don't like this version of you, God. How do we know about that? How how do we know about his prayer inside the fish? The only way we could possibly know these things is if Jonah himself told others. He alone was in the belly of the fish. The only way to know these things is if Jonah shared his story with other people. Here's another quote from Timothy Keller. What kind of man would let the world see what a fool he was? 
Only someone who had become joyfully secure in God's love. Only someone who believed that he was simultaneously sinful but completely accepted. In short, someone who was found in the gospel of grace, the very power of God. If it can change Jonah, it can change anyone. It can change you. I want to leave you with the lyrics of this song that Mary shared with me. It's called Nineveh by Brooke Ligerwood. And I like to think that Jonah wrote this song. He didn't. But I like to think that this is what he would have sang towards the end of his life. And I want you to put yourselves in the place of Nineveh. Put yourself in the place of Jonah. Because honestly, God is showing Jonah that God was showing Jonah that he is no different from Nineveh. That just as God extends mercy to the Ninevites, Jonah needed the same mercy extended to him. That, that nobody is greater than the other. That we all are in need of God's mercy. And I would like to think that Jonah would write something like this towards the end of his life. Nineveh, O oh Nineveh, the Lord is turning towards you. Compassion or calamity, will you heed the warning? Fall on your knees, tear down your idols. When you choose to surrender, you choose survival. Call on his name. Turn from your violence. Out of the ashes, he will revive you. God, have mercy. God, have mercy. I know you are a gracious God. I know you are slow to anger, but I misunderstood your love. Forgive me, God, for running. You sent a wind, stirred up the ocean. Still I rebelled. My heart wasn't open. But when I prayed, you were there waiting. I made a vow to speak your salvation. Nineveh, on Nineveh, the Lord is turning toward you. Holy Spirit, help me see where there is Nineveh in me. Turn away your wrath once more. God, have mercy. Perfect prophet, priest and king, Christ became the reckoning. In his body bore my sin. Now to all who trust in him, God has mercy. Oh, God, have mercy on us. Nineveh, oh, Nineveh, the Lord is turning towards you. Where is there Nineveh in you? Where are you in need of God's mercy? Have you become like Jonah and sense that you deserve something from God? You deserve to see His goodness on your life. You deserve all the good things of God. Have you gotten to the place in your life where you become self-righteous like Jonah? If so, there's a moment right now this morning where God is saying, No, I want to show you Nineveh in you. mercy. I want to show you my love. Would you stand with me, church? I pray for you. Jesus, show us where there is Nineveh in us. Show us where there is Jonah in us. And break our hearts for the lost. Revealing to us how much we are in need of your mercy. We may have been following you for 10, 15 years, maybe longer, a lifetime. But we are still in need of your grace. We are still in need of your mercy. We still need at times for you to take away the plant. To 
of God, we humble ourselves. Just like Jonah did in the belly of the fish. We cry out with humility, with honesty, with thanksgiving. Lord, we make you a promise today to partner with you in showing mercy to others. I pray, God, that we would never, ever consider ourselves better than anyone else. But we would see, we'd recognize the need for mercy in our life and we would extend that mercy to other people. You are the God of mercy, a God of compassion, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And you do not let the ju- the, the, the you do not let evil go unpunished. You are a good God, a good judge, a good father. So Father, we turn to you this morning. If you're here in this place, are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to pray with you this morning. If you're here and you haven't given your life to this God of compassion, this God of mercy who loves you, would you just raise your hand? If you are, if you're saying today's the day, I want to receive this grace that Jesus has for me. If you've never prayed that prayer before and you say, I want to belong to God, I want to belong to his family, I want to be considered a child of God, a friend of God. If that's you and you've never prayed that prayer, just raise your hand right now for me to see. Lift it up in the air. Lift it up high so I can see. God, I pray for every person in this room that you would continue to move in us, do a work in us. And Jesus, we every day would be reminded of how much we need you. say this prayer with me, church. Just repeat after me. Jesus, I love you. I give you my heart. I'm sorry for the sin that I've committed. Would you make me new? Give me a new spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to walk in your ways. I belong to you from this day forward. Love you.